trust? Do you trust that that iPhone you might be holding hasn't been hacked? Do you trust the government to pull hateful material off the internet? In fact, while we're at it, do you even trust that pulling hateful material off the internet will stop atrocities like the Christchurch shooting? And is it fair to compare the trust that media organisations command, like the ABC or Channel 9, versus the trust we put in social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook? Yes, this week on Download This Show, it is an elaborate trust exercise. So get ready to close your eyes, cross your arms and fall backwards into the week of media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And if I sound a little bit more tired than usual, it is because I have just gotten off a plane. Go easy on me. And also a very big welcome to our panellists this week. Uh, you may have heard her uh, on background briefing this week. In addition to her work that you can always hear on Radio National Breakfast and across the ABC's website. My God, you are busy. Ariel Bogle. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. Uh, If you haven't heard it yet, go make sure you subscribe to the Background Briefing podcast because Ariel's done a fascinating story on vaping, which is, of course, often known as e-cigarettes, but actually as an access point to the world of, of libertarianism. Yes. It's fascinating. It's very, very fascinating territory. Go check it out on the Background Briefing pod. Alongside Ariel, we have from GovHack, Peter Marks. Welcome back. G'day, Mark. Good to see you. Way too long. It has, it has. And you're celebrating 10 years of GovHack? Yeah, GovHack is 10 years old this year, so it was started in 2009 as part of the Government 2.0 push. I wonder how that went. Which which Uh, one are we up to now? Yeah. Five points? Yeah, what version of government are we at at the moment? 2.01 But uh, yeah, I think government's still in beta. It needs to go back to testing. (laughs) So uh, GovHack runs actually this weekend. So by the time you're listening to this, it'll already be about to start, but it's uh, in locations across Australia and New Zealand, and it's an opportunity to hack on open government data to solve problems in society. It's mm. a great thing, and there's thousands of people involved. And as we always say, just as a caveat, this is not an encouragement to hack the government. No, it's please don't do that. Using that glorious open data. Talking about hacking, perhaps of the less uh, altruistic kind, for years people have talked about Apple as being the more secure of the various different operating systems, and gradually over time, I think that we've become a bit more realistic in our assessment of, of how secure Apple is. But actually, Google uh, uncovered something quite alarming within Apple systems. Ped Marks. Yeah, so just in the past week, the Google Project Zero group, which tries to find what are called zero-day exploits. So I should explain that. Mm. A zero-day is... Uh, Sounds very Tom Clancy. I'm really into of, it. Uh, some people call it O-day. Uh, zero-day is some sort of security exploit in some software that... You can exploit, but the manufacturer, the maker, has not got a fix for yet. So it's the first day, it means you're up for it. So this actually dates back a few months, but only was announced last week. And it was an exploit that was on some websites. And simply by visiting the website on an iPhone, running a range of operating systems, and this has been out in the wild for some time, it would install some software on your phone just by, it's like a drive-by. You only have to open it up in Safari and you would have software installed on your phone that 
exfiltrated a ton of data. So it was things like your contacts, your photos, your messages, including messages in things like WhatsApp, which are encrypted. He would also put a beacon in there that reported back your position to a command and control server. Really nasty backdoor, and it's been out there for several years. Mm. Now, Ariel, they haven't actually unveiled much detail about the website in question, have they? I guess for, for good reason, but are there other details about it that I guess... I'm actually asking you a question as a user here. Like, what's the website to avoid? What about me? Yes, tell me what website to not go to. Well, yes, Google has so far been very cagey about attribution. So attribution, deciding who is responsible for a cyber attack is always a very difficult thing to do. People can mask their code, put tricks in there to suggest it's the Russians or whoever else. There has been some reporting out there, though, suggesting that these websites were websites of interest to people from the Uyghur Muslim majority. So, of course, these are people from uh, the Xinjiang province in China, and at the moment they are excessively under the thumb of China. There's suggestions of Uyghurs being put in concentration camps, re-education, the whole gamut. And so if this is correct, that these websites were websites of interest to this minority, um, there is that link to the Chinese government. So that is really the speculation out there, but Google hasn't confirmed either way and neither has Apple. Mm. And also they necessarily haven't come up with a solution for it either, have they, Peter? At least not publicly. Oh, no, actually it has been fixed. It was fixed in 12.1.4, which shipped back in February. And that was the release that fixed a very embarrassing uh, group FaceTime bug. You might remember. I do not. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a I bad, have no friends. I have a, no one to group FaceTime it was, with. Oh, Mark. It was a, <laughs> I do remember this one. This was a great little... Uh, yeah, so it was one that... Great that one for pervert. If you added someone to uh, a group FaceTime chat, it would connect them in and turn their camera on straight away. So it's horrendous. Basically, oh, without doing now, anything, yeah. yeah, your camera would be on and your video would be being broadcast. Very embarrassing bug by Apple. Apple turned off group t- FaceTime for a while till 12.1.4 came out. Now, we know that that wasn't the only thing that was fixed in 12.1.4, but this bug, this one that was being exploited by these on these websites, has been around for a couple of years before that from, I think it was uh, iOS 10 on or something until 12.1.4. So if I you- love that you know the version numbers. <laughs> like So so in years, how, roughly how long would it have been? I think it's about two to three years, and it's a range of phones from iPhone 5 on. Actually, it is a bit confusing, and I, I did almost do my head in. We're currently on, when I obviously check my own phone, we're now on 12.4.1, and this was fixed in 12.1.4 and I went have I got this right? But if you don't yeah. want me to call you Rain Man on the air, <laughs> stop using decimal points on the radio. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's talk about whose responsibility it is to go public with this stuff because that sounds like it was uh, an exploit that was available for a really long time and Apple were not upfront about it. At what point do we think people, at what point do we think organisations should be public and clear about when they uh, even fix these things, Ariel? It's a great question. It's a very complex area, especially if the reports are true and this does involve nation states. This is on a scale, it's not quite like the FaceTime bug where it's a bug that really could... That was an own goal. An own goal. It could affect anyone and everyone ought to know pretty quick and install the update. This is something that sounds like it was somewhat targeted potentially at a specific group. And it raises a whole range of interesting questions about Apple in general, because not only was Apple in the past the safe one, you know, iOS and Macs were the safe product compared to the Windows or the um, Android ecosystem. Um, 
Apple also used to be quite confined geographically to countries like the United States mm. or Australia or the UK. But as they've pushed into China and other countries, they're coming up against really hostile actors, I suppose. I mean, not not to give um, the American government or even the Australian government um, carte blanche here. They mm. also have been aggressively hacking <laughs> uh, plenty of things. But Apple has to deal with this. And a few years ago, you might remember Google pulled out of China when it found out its systems had been hacked by the government targeting um, human rights activists in China. They were able to pull out as a reaction to that. I don't think we'll see Apple pulling out of China and not selling iPhones there anymore as a result of this exploit, if the exploit is in fact tied to targeting of Uyghur Muslims. Yeah, it's also a side effect of Apple's dominance now. It used to be that Windows had 95% of the computing Mm. market and so when people wanted to hack someone, they would make a hack for Windows and they would target it. Now Apple dominates in the phones. And actually, it's partially because Apple is a monoculture Everyone runs the same iOS on pretty much the Apple on the Apple hardware. They have to, mm. whereas Android is actually quite fragmented. There's many different version, many different bits of hardware. You're not just hacking Google's Android software; also hacking whatever Samsung does to it, and all of the other makers do to it as well. So it's a more fragmented thing, and that's the shocking thing about this exploit: is that it lasted for perhaps three years because everyone was running the same software. Another thing is that Apple demands that all web browsers run WebKit, the Safari code. So even if you have Chrome or Firefox Mm. on a phone, on an iPhone, you're actually still running Safari. And that's where this exploit or three of these exploits were. They were in the Safari code that was being run by all browsers. So it's a monoculture and that's risky. I'm I guess I'm more interested in the ethics of when a company like an Apple should disclose and and how much they should disclose, particularly in instances like this where um, let's follow the logic that it perhaps was targeted against a certain community and maybe that was enacted by a a, a state-based actor, right? So in that instance, there you could, I could see an argument for why you would want to just fix it and not publicise it. But then what if you are at the receiving end of this and, and you want to know whether you should just burn your phone or something less drastic than that? By not telling people, you're you're sort of doing a disservice to your sort of potentially quite vulnerable customers. Yeah, so the way most uh, security researchers work is they'll notify the maker and they'll say, okay, we've found a zero-day exploit in your software. Uh, we're telling you about it and you now have a certain amount of time before we'll go public with it. And that's how Project Zero at Google also works. And so they did let Apple know. But I agree with you. And, I mean, the analysis that's been done by by Google is amazing. It, it goes, it's a hugely deep analysis of how the bugs worked, of what data they got out. But I think at first to Apple, all it would have looked like is some sort of minor crash. So Apple would have been receiving some telemetry from phones saying, gee, they go to this website and the browser somehow crashes. It's actually very subtle. It was a, they start off a whole lot of JavaScript threads and in certain circumstances it would crash and they would let them get a privilege escalation. And so it would have been quite subtle. Something's going on, but they didn't know what. Now, in the full light of day and this analysis has been done, we know how serious it was that not only was all of the contacts of those people visiting the site been given up to the command and control server, but also they were left beaconing their location back to that server. So, as you say, it's horrendous. Apple, so far, as far as I know, hasn't said anything publicly about it. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that Apple has so far been so silent when Google published like a seven-page yeah, um, really dossier. Yeah, really great analysis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess in, I mean... 
I'd love to see the emails between Google and Apple <laughs> when they were disclosing I'd love to see this. All of the emails between Google and Apple ever written. Yeah, full all stop. Of them. <laughs> Give me the rest of my life. Yeah. I come back with a book. Yeah, um, several books, <laughs> a HBO miniseries. <laughs> I mean, maybe just wildly speculating here. Apple hasn't had so much experience having to disclose these kinds of things. They are, they have had problems like the FaceTime bug. There've been plenty of other bugs, but unlike. Uh, other companies, they're not as used to having to sort of, you know, apologise, I suppose, to the crowd yeah, for making there, an insecure device. There is a marketplace for these exploits and the exploits for iOS for current versions like zero-day exploits, are they used by things like the um, the Israeli hackers who can crack a phone, and mm. root a phone and get all the data out of it? So they sell them for huge amounts of money to police forces around the world. So, so, wait, 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 wait. so, so there are... So if just, I find, just, a, if yeah, I find just, just a hack, I find a way to, to root a phone to get into the phone and read everything on it, I can sell that for, it used to be a million dollars to people who want to build these tools for typically for law enforcement to be able to get into to locked phones. Recently, there's been a um, uh, an excess of iOS hacks, apparently, and the price has fallen below exploits for Android for the first time. So this is really, I guess it, what it says is Google's doing a really good job with their security. And Apple perhaps has had some of these bugs, as I said, have been around for years and no one knew about it except obviously these people who were dealing in those mm. hacks. Now, Apple at Black Hat this year, the, the security conference in Las Vegas, did up their game. They're, they're offering um, uh, prizes to people who come forward and show exploits. So basically they're saying we will pay, in fact, I think it was a million dollars, we'll pay up to a million dollars if you can do certain things. And they're also offering debug hardware, which can be given out to researchers who are known to them. So they are starting to to up their game. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. We're in here in the studio with Ariel Brogel, technology reporter across the ABC and Peter Marks who is from GovHack. Uh, speaking of Gov, see, last time I was speaking of hack, this oh, time I was speaking uh, of Gov. Yeah. Where will we go with the third story? I don't know. Uh, the government has announced ISP-level blocking for dangerous material. Basically, this is a reaction to, to Christchurch. They're going to block... Uh, well, actually, you know what, Aaron? I might get you to explain exactly what they're going to try and block here because some of this just seems incredibly unclear to me. Well, you wouldn't be the only one that says so. So in the wake of Christchurch, of course there was a lot of attention paid to the fact that the terrorist in that case live streamed the attack onto Facebook and that the footage has had a long life, not only on Facebook, but on other platforms, YouTube, etc. And after that, the government quickly passed a set of laws that made, uh, put, I suppose, more burden on platform providers like Facebook to remove what they called abhorrent content. And there were fines, you know, up to 10% of turnover for not removing such content in an expeditious manner. Mm. The problem is at that time, a lot of people pointed out from the law council and from the tech companies and rights groups that knee-jerk laws are always problematic. Laws passed in a rush in the wake of something truly horrific uh, may not always have the finesse required to actually mm. have an impact. And so that's the continued criticism here. The government has is starting to sort of formalise the framework that it's going to use to ask uh, even ISPs or internet providers like Telstra or Vodafone to block websites that are hosting abhorrent material. After Christchurch 2, Telstra and the other ISPs started blocking um, some of the websites that were hosting this video as well. So they're, they're moving towards formalising this relationship and I guess giving the eSafety Commissioner's Office the powers to do so? I mean, this is the most obvious thought ever, but we're talking about blocking sites 
Yeah. If it's Christchurch, the guy live streamed on Facebook, you're not going to both block Facebook, are you, Peter? Well, that is the question. I mean, are they really going to block all of Facebook, all of YouTube, all of no, Twitch? No, of and, course they're and not. If this was in place when Christchurch happened, would it have even affected it? Because it would have been over by the time the blocking came in because you've got to talk to all the ISPs and you know, you, they, they're talking about having a 24 by 7 monitoring lab which uh, is watching the internet. I mean, if, how if on we're earth are they going about, to do that? If we're talking about blocking 8chan where he posted the big racist screed beforehand... Okay, that's a that's a slightly more nuanced debate, but the, like because the whole thing gets linked to Christchurch, I'm just like like where a where's your boundary of abhorrent content and how big's too big for the platform to be before you decide that you're gonna block it? I can only think that what they're proposing is they they will contact Facebook and say you've got to take down this live stream. If Facebook doesn't do anything for five minutes, then they'll just block all of Facebook. But to block Facebook, the whole domain is is hugely disruptive. Uh, I would about- be shocked. I mean, uh, why I would say I'm more likely to see if if something, God forbid, like Christchurch happened again, they would tell Facebook this is on the on your platform. Take it off right now. If you, they don't, they'll get this 10% of turnover fine, I would be shocked to my core if Facebook was ever blocked. Yeah, and also, like, to, to they're talking about creating a 24-7 Senator Monitor online crisis events, right? Literally, Facebook pay thousands of moderators in around the world. And they still can't pick and it they up. Still, yeah, exactly. They, they still can't do it. So it's like, what what exactly? I think it was done quickly and I think it's a bit of a red herring. Now, Reporters Without Borders already classifies Australia as partially an internet enemy in that we monitor our internet. At the moment, as far as I know, we don't have a great firewall of Australia in place. And that's really the only way this is going to work. If they want to be able to switch things off, they need every all traffic to go through something which... God forbid, I do not want to have happen. It has terrible side effects. So how are they going to monitor? They're, they're wanting to look for terrorist acts, murder, attempted murder, torture, rape, kidnapping. Are they going to have automatic content analysis software that looks for this stuff? And if they do, then we're going to have false positives. Uh, we already had... I was, I was looking at uh, Robot Wars the other day and it had been taken off YouTube because it triggered animal cruelty. <laughs> Which Was the cruelty to the animal to, of humans that have to watch it? somehow it, detected robots bashing each other as being animals being hit or something around. Do they know something about robots that we don't is my question. <laughs> Maybe they do. <laughs> I mean, potentially more attention could be paid to the beginning of the journey into radicalization rather than the end yeah. result. I mean, this is, I'm not, I'm certainly not the first person to make this argument, but we still get into grips with the role of these platforms, YouTube, Facebook and others in directing people to content that might start to inspire white supremacism or whatever else um, ism out there. And perhaps that would be a better place for the government to be focusing its attention rather than this end result. Facebook and YouTube and Twitter have been somewhat dragged into the types of monitoring required to run a platform at the scale they do and make sure that videos such as the Christchurch one don't stay online for an hour or more as this as it did because mm. they were waiting for someone to flag it rather than proactively monitoring. So I guess there is there does need to be a bit of stick there. It's just a, it's a very messy area in which to legislate and I don't think the rush did it any favors. I think there's absolute value in setting up some sort of structure to navigate this stuff uh, as it's made and shared in Australia, but at the end of the day extremist views they cross borders pretty readily. 
yeah. their, their ability to navigate things that exist beyond our borders or, or to affect in any way, I would imagine is quite limited. We really need far more details than we have about this and how it will really work. You know, is it an office of 100 or is it office of one? Is it something that already exists within the National Security Services that will have greater connections to the Safety Commissioner's Office? There's a lot of open questions here and we'll really be looking for firm, clear detail from the government about it before we can really analyse um, whether such a program would have any success. I just worry that it's it's an excuse to put in more monitoring, more filtering. It's, you know, they're going to say, in order to do this thing, we need to have all internet traffic go through a box at every ISP that we hook up to. And it's just the thin edge of a wedge. And would it have done anything anyway? Because there's so many private groups, there's so many encrypted messaging systems. I think we've got to deal with this at the root cause, which is education, it's media, it's it's a broad range of, of you know opinions in media that people see. And the problem is we're going down this echo chamber rat hole. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And uh, last week, Roy Morgan released their state of the nation in terms of media. Uh, the number one headline that most people walked away from this piece of research was which media organisations people trust, mm. the ABC, overwhelmingly, uh, distrust, Facebook, so we're very on song. And yet it was still the most downloaded app. Yeah, I know, that's my favourite thing about this. But actually, that's what I love about research like this because it exposes some of the pretty glaring inconsistencies with what we say and what we mm. think and then what we do. But in terms of what was announced, Peter, was there something that stood out to you as being a particularly surprising takeaway? Well, yes, I, I think it's great. 10% of Australians download podcasts every month now, which is up from 3% a decade ago. So podcasts are like, I reckon they're the sleeper of the future of media because they're so convenient. It's just the problem is they're hard to find and, and access, but it's gradually getting there. But I thought the big takeout was brands. If you want to be successful, you have to have a brand that people trust and you've got to continue to build that trust. Unless you're Facebook, which nobody trusts and everyone downloads. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think they, they had measures of trust and distrust. And yes, ABC was trusted by far ahead of uh, Nine, SBS, News Corp. All right, let's let's not gloat. Come but on. Facebook, <laughs> Facebook was also trusted as a source. And a lot of people get, 60% of people, I think, get their news from the internet now. And basically the media landscape has is in turmoil and, you know, the business model has disappeared. The trust thing in relation to Facebook is complicated though because you sign up to the news organisations that you care about on Facebook and therefore that affects whether or not you trust Facebook. Like I think, I think to compare the trust of a content producer and a content deliverer are is we it, going to? Are we about to launch into the? Is, no, is I, Facebook a, a media face, brand? Facebook is a media company, but they don't make things, and the trust is derived from the making of content. Uh, Facebook Watch is very uh, offended right now. Well, they should be because it's like the fun to thing for a year and then see what happens. But anyway, out of the out of the research, Ariel, what struck you as being particularly interesting? Well, I also was fascinated by those discrepancies, I suppose, between who people trust and who they consume. Yeah, they didn't add up. They were more than 100%. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't trust numbers. Yes. And like, for example, newspapers were the most trusted media channel, mm. which I assume means, you know, type of media, but still television was the preferred way of getting news delivered to you. I also found it interesting that 
newspapers were increasingly a multi-platform proposition. They would have a digital version people could, subs- could subscribe to, like the newspaper. Yeah. But magazines were not moving online like newspapers, according to this work, which is interesting. I, you know, a lot of the American magazine brands, you know, the New York or New York magazine, um, the Atlantic all have, of course, digital versions and a lot of extra content. But when I do think of Australia's magazine landscape, it does seem a little less online, which is an interesting thing. Well, see, that's a really interesting point because I think there are sort of top-end journalistic magazines that exist, but the the sheer number of them is so much smaller than what you get in the US. So that, totally. that, that whole category, I think, is comparatively anemic to what you'd see in the US and the UK. Absolutely, yeah. And but, we've seen a lot of them drop out. A lot of the Australian fashion magazines that used to exist are no longer around and right. in yeah, a lot of other Australian categories Mac as well. Macworld, for example, and mm. that's gone. But what's gone. interesting is that the things that do still exist in and this could just be, I guess, demographically where I'm coming from, but the things that do still seem to exist as magazines actually do tend to be more on the lifestyle end of things. So you do still see Women's yeah, Weekly and th- you see Frankie and Smith Journal and think things like move into an art and, and fashion sort of territory. But also they're specialists. They specialise in one thing. And that's, I think, the flaw with newspapers used to say, you buy our paper and you'll get all of the world's news. Well, people don't consume news that way anymore. People consume news through an aggregator. They use Apple News or Google News or, or Flipboard or one or of these things. Whatever the Facebook algorithms feed me Facebook, this week. Or Facebook, they're getting know. stories from all over the place. And I think that to survive publications, mastheads need to say, we are your tech masthead or we are your fashion masthead and stories from that will be mingled in with world news and other things and that way people do get it but they don't try to do everything anymore. I mean it was all wire stories anyway so it was a, if anyone thinks they were really getting the world news from their local paper. But what is interesting about their sort of assessment on the magazine point though is they're saying that they sort of they break down the categories of, of magazines that are still in vogue and what I even though the 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 consumption of newspapers is down they still rank newspaper-inserted magazines as the top li- of the list of, of magazines that people want to consume. So I'm like, it, it's not feel- choosing to get that, though. They just get stuffed in it on the weekend. What looks good is magazines on a big iPad or a big tablet. Everyone's tried that, though, and oh, no, it's no. never taken off. Let me, mm, no, I don't, well, yeah, I don't I know dabbled. why, because I've got some here. But do you remember that year where everybody put their money into like Wired? making? Do you remember Wired? Had yeah, an app Wired and had an incredible app, but also like News Corp had well, the Daily is, uh, and things like that. I don't even know what this is, but this is some sound. You know, it's a specialist thing for people who like mixing audio, and it just looks great. For on those playing along at home, uh, Peter Marks has lifted up his iPad, and I'm holding it up to the microphone here. Yeah, you can but, hear um, this, the whirring of the iPad, right? You know, a large. <laughs> they don't have a fan. A large, <laughs> not helping. <laughs> a large tablet with a high resolution screen. The colours pop. I mean, it's just a beautiful visual experience. But unfortunately, it just no one consumes. They that don't way. do it. They don't. People don't consume it like this anymore. I wonder but, why, because you know, it it, it is technically the mm. best way of doing it. If you if you're going to consume a magazine digitally, you still want the typesetting, the design. It is the best way of doing it. But why don't people do it? Well, yeah. I, I mean, don't is know. it the downloadable there's factor? Tac- there's a tactile pleasure in getting a printed magazine with a high quality glossy cover and, you know, beautiful illustrations or anything. Well, that's, that- I mean, that's an interesting point then, because I think maybe magazines have moved perhaps away from being an information source and more to being um, an object of beauty. And actually, when I used to write for magazines, the magazines I wrote for always used to put a heavy emphasis on the fact that it's got 
our th- the, the thing we produce has got to be beautiful. Mm. You have to want mm. it as a physical object. Mm. It gives you Re- pleasure to, to go through the pages. And, yeah. You know. I says, and just reading between the lines, I, I think that's probably continued and, and developed to some degree. I also think the, ad- the attitudes to advertising are really fascinating. So one of the lines in here is that contrary to what is sometimes said, advertising is actually seen by readers as a valuable part of the print medium. Print has an important mm. feature that television will never have. People actually read newspapers, magazines for the advertisements. Does that make like I do? I know I, there's a magazine QST which I read, which is a ham radio magazine, and I would say seventy percent of the content in the magazine is ads. But of course, it's ads for the things I'm interested in. So it's ads for new radios and I mean, all this sort of but stuff. But that's the argument for Facebook advertising. It knows so much about me that it services me ads that mm. I'm I'm actually interested in. Yeah, but over and over and over again, what's happened to to Instagram at the moment? I'm just getting so many ads; it's just wrecking it. And with that, we shall leave you. A very big thank you to Ariel Bogle for coming back on Download the Show. Thanks, Mark. Make sure you subscribe to the Background Briefing podcast and hear her background briefing. And Peter Marks from GovHack, thanks for coming back. My pleasure. If you listen to this very fast, you can still get involved in GovHack. It is happening over the weekend. Uh, And, of course, uh, they have events that run periodically that you can get involved in. Every September. And with that, my name has been Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. 